Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 5, Episode 1 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. Blimey, Pea Supers, Season 5. Thanks so much for joining me. I've got a cracking set of guests lined up for you. So, whilst many people understand mindfulness as a way of relieving stress and of feeling a little bit better, which is fab, mindfulness can seep into entire organisations, but not just through one method, which is for individuals to sit in silent meditation using the breath or other bodily sensations or the body scan as anchor. But there are other ways for us to become mindful, both as individuals or you and me. We could become a mindful team. And that looks and sounds and feels different from the practices that I might do myself to become mindful. Our first guest is Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock a social psychologist from City University of London, who is also the co-director of the Centre for Excellence in Mindfulness Research. Yuta's research explores next-generation mindfulness, which means using the science of mindfulness at a collaborative team level. I've called this episode the Mindfulness Manifesto. You'll hear a bit more about Yuta's career history, the breadth of her mindfulness exploration, and the motivation for her current research. It was such a fascinating chat that I've decided to spread the joy and split the conversation over three episodes. Yes, another first for people's soup. Mindfulness is often misunderstood and I felt it was important to give it a thorough airing for the pea soupers to reflect and digest. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to help you glow to work a bit more often. Let's just scoot over to the news desk. You might have noticed some new headshots, courtesy of my husband, Manel Ortega, and a new logo and colours. I'm pretty sure there'll be some merch in the pipeline too to build upon our legendary bookmarks. I've also taken the plunge and moved to a new platform, Captivate. So I'll be getting used to that and all its brilliant features over the next few weeks. But for now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my chat with Yuta. Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock, welcome to People Soup. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ross. It's such a joy and such a treat to be with you. You know how much of a fan I am of you. <laughs> oh, bless you. And right back at you. Um... Now, Yuta, you'll be familiar, I've got this research department who beaver away and look for information about my guests. So I'm going to present to you what they found out about you. And I have to say they're not always 100% accurate. So do do keep your ears open because sometimes they get stuff wrong. Amazing. A rustle of paper. So... Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist with 25 years of work experience in organizational development and capacity building in six countries on three continents. Blimey. Yuta's research is focused on behavior change initiatives in the workplace geared at generating sustainable well being and performance using third wave cognitive behavioral approaches, <laughs> such as P Supers, something called act acceptance and commitment therapy, which we're <laughs> which we're a big fan of here and other evidence-based mindfulness frameworks she researches and teaches workplace mindfulness and leadership in collaboration with a variety of organizations 
and is a popular keynote speaker on the link between well-being and performance. What a mouthful, eh? This is. Mm -hmm. Goodness, how do you fit all this in? In fact, we were having a conversation <laughs> before I pressed record about how you fit all this in. But listeners, blimey, listen to this. So Yuta serves as an advisor to UK think tank, the Mindfulness Initiative, and to the US-based mindfulness and education nonprofit called Inner Explorer. Not only that, but she's won awards too. <laughs> <laughs> Including the 2019 City University School of Arts and Social Science Learning and Teaching Award and People's Prize, and several Cranfield Uni Awards too. The teaching a prize I'm actually quite proud of, I have to say. I think that is a tough gig to get a prize from students. It was actually a group of other teachers and it might even be tougher to get a teaching award from a group of other teachers than from students because in, in some ways you have power over students with, with grades mm. but, but there's a <laughs> lot of social dynamics going on between teachers <laughs> yeah and by the way i should have said at the beginning me and yuta both work me very much on the periphery but yuta at the core at city university of london organizational psychology department which is where we met mm -hmm. and Yuta has been on the podcast before in name because she co-authored and supervised the research by Alexandra Lechner on creating psychological safety in virtual teams which was one of our most popular episodes by the I'm way I'm so pleased to hear that <laughs> anyway back to my research department the Cranfield Awards particularly recognize her innovative work on incorporating mindfulness into academic and executive education. And she's introduced thousands of senior managers and executive students to mindfulness, very close to my heart. So she's been investigating and delivering innovative mindfulness interventions in the British Army and the Royal Navy, and currently conducts research on resilience in the Royal Marine Corps. There's more. <laughs> There's more, Yuta. <laughs> In partnership with another legend at City University of London, Dr. Trudy Edgington, Yuta co-directs City University's Centre for Excellence in Mindfulness Research. And folks, I'll put the link to that in the show notes for this episode, but it's at mindfulness-science.com. She's been published in many leading academic journals, and also featured in the popular press, including The Times, The Sunday Times, The Financial Times, Newsweek on BBC Radio 4 and the BBC World Service, and in the 2015 TV <laughs> documentary, The Mindful Revolution. Blimey, this is amazing. And your life before academia, <laughs> let's just touch upon that. See, they did their work. Gosh, you've got a department. big team there. <laughs> Yuta worked for nearly a decade as a consultant for several IT consultancies, including Arthur Anderson, partnering with firms such as Goldman Sachs, Nomura and McKinsey on IT and strategy projects. I just have to put this in. We had so much stuff, I had to kind of <laughs> weed it out a bit. But during your doctoral studies at Washington State University, you were selected to direct a student-led project creating a sustainable community internet space in rural Rwanda on behalf of USAID. Yuta's doctoral research took her back to Rwanda, where she conducted one of the first government-endorsed scientific surveys of post-genocide intergroup relations between Hutu and Tutsi, 
and the effect of institutional reform to increase entrepreneurial opportunity in a desperate poverty post-genocide context. Subsequently, <laughs> you to learn the art and science of lobbying in the public interest as the postdoctoral James Marshall Public Policy Fellow for the American Psychological Association and the Society for the Study of Social Issues during Washington, D.C.'s glory days when President Obama introduced the health care reform bill. Shout out to President Obama, hey? Woohoo! Yuta mm. is a fellow of the RSA, holds a psychotherapeutic counselling qualification from the University of Cambridge, and has volunteered in U.S. prisons for the Alternatives to Violence Project, a volunteer-run conflict transformation programme. She lives in Suffolk with her family and a pushy poodle who moonlights as a PAT, which is Pets as Therapy Dog. <laughs> the dog is the centre of attention whenever we go out, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan, virtually, of, of Tilly. <laughs> now, there was something else. It's, it's not something they uncovered that we were surprised by. It's an idea that we had when I was talking to my research department. Um, they were mighty impressed by your research, your energy and your influence. And we were having a chat where we started to play with a crazy idea, which I thought I might just share with you to see what you think. So what we can picture, just imagine this, Yuta, a Netflix series. It's like reality TV, where you and your trusty standard poodle Tilly visit organisations and support them in developing sustainable approaches to well-being and performance. And each episode would have conversations, drama, insights and impact. And... You might also solve any outstanding crimes while you're there in that <laughs> environment. Yeah, I think he's sort of a superhero with a trusty sidekick dog. And what do you think? <laughs> yes, make it about Tilly and make me the supporter. I can check where, uh, where Timmy has fallen into the well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of reluctant to suggest anything on to add to your to-do list. <laughs> but maybe we can work on just stripping that back so you can also look after yourself yes yes i do i do though and i think having a dog in your life is a incredibly wonderful thing to pull you back into the present and into what really matters this is how tilly adds value to my life the dog that forces me to be outside at least twice a day it's a serious it's a serious point actually but we're talking about how busy you are and how there are so many requests and pulls on your time how do you look after yourself i can see that tilly plays an integral part in that i think the the you and i have again before the before we pressed record talked about values and about what's important to us and i'm fortunate in that i'm old and gray enough to know what happens when i don't look after myself and i've had so many war wounds of overloading my diary to show for that I think I've built up a little bit of a thicker skin to actually say I will do this but only after I've mm. you know I, and again I'm a learning machine aren't I constantly learning I'm constantly room to improve but the thing is this is such exciting work the work that you and I are doing helping people in workplaces be and do well it's satisfying work and so the work is the fun and if the work is fun, then that feeds me to to have the energy to keep going. I think it would be different if I had a different job. 
Mm. And there was a lovely phrase that you talked about that I don't think translates to English, but it was I think it was from your mum. Mm. What, what was that phrase? Mm. Yeah, and so, the, so when we talk about values, it's sometimes it happens that we, we talk about values that are goody-two-shoe values, like, you know, be kind, um, maybe have discipline, but these values are not necessarily helping us ourselves and there's this saying in in German that literally translates as asking yourself who's the one that needs this most and the saying goes I am also somebody not just everybody else so I am also somebody who has needs I'm also somebody who has the right to make space for myself as well as making space for everybody else so perhaps that's something for people to take away, right? You are also somebody, you know. I love that. I can I can see that on t-shirts, mm-hmm. Yuta, or maybe maybe just written above your own laptop yes. to remind yourself. Yeah. Because sometimes it's easier for us to convey these messages to others, but do we apply them to ourselves? Mm-hmm. So I gave a, a whistle-stop tour of your your CV there, very condensed. But I wonder if you just talk a bit more about how you arrived at where you are today and maybe some pivotal moments in your career. Mm-hmm. I really didn't know what I wanted to do apart from I wanted to travel. I wanted to be with people. I wanted to see the world. And so I moved away from Germany as soon as I had the chance. And I studied a bit of everything, business, management, law, languages, and got into IT consulting, loved it, and realized over the first five, six, seven years of my IT consultancy career that the stuff that was most juicy and the stuff that was causing the most amount of harm and suffering in organizations, and these were high power, highly resourced organizations that I worked with, but the problems were not to do with money, finance, or technology even though we were always talking about technology, business processes, and so on, and these things, the problems were always people, and especially interpersonal relationships. And people worried and lost sleep, not over the work, but over the people dynamics at work. So I I was intrigued, and I didn't really get it. So I went back to school, got a PhD in social psychology, which is the, social psychology is the, the bit that in organizations, when you're interested in science, you dip into social psychology because that's the, almost the core of how we relate to each other. That's where all, also all the stuff happens when it hits the fan. And I wanted to go back into consultancy, but realized that I really like science. I really like when stuff is valid and reliable. And that means it doesn't just work for blonde women and it doesn't just work on a Tuesday. So I, I got a little bit hooked on science and I came back to the UK and started working for Cranfield University and in their business school, teaching leadership management, performance management to senior executives. And around that time, the mindfulness movement had started. And I got into researching and teaching mindfulness, not because I had a history of personal healing or, or personal suffering that I brought to my life or to the life that I, that I was sharing with people that I was teaching. but. I came to mindfulness for, as a decision-making scholar, and so, uh, and I still to this day think mindfulness has a lot to say in helping people judge and make better choices that are good for them in the long run. 
for example, reminding myself that I am also somebody helps me be a little bit more mindful in making decisions. And that's one of the practices that I'm kind of exploring and investigating. How do we help people make choices that are good for them in the long run, that don't just feel right in the short term and the immediate? And many of us, of course, want to help others or want to please others. So in the short run, maybe saying yes to something that in the long run is not good for us is actually a mindless choice. It's a choice that we mm. make absent-mindedly. Perhaps doing it for the short-term relief of not having that decision on your mind or short-term get this off my desk. Mm. On impulse, on urge, an instinctive yeah. urge that might dominate and bias, right? And skew our perspective of what's right and what's good for us in the long run. So you discovered mindfulness and you started to think how this might be useful for these executives and these academics and organizations. So how did you begin to work out how to make it accessible to them? Well, I think the thing that makes me a bit different from mainstream and from the largest group of mindfulness researchers and practitioners is that I read as much as I could on different schools of mindfulness. And then, in fact, I'm writing up a paper right now on giving almost a, a historic perspective of how the mindfulness movement that steps beyond the popular and incredibly successful science based around John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness as meditation and almost the equation of meditation with mindfulness. So the the, the way I approached understanding mindfulness was read about different literatures, read about different incarnations of mindfulness, both for individuals, but lo and behold, there's a whole mindfulness literature that's highly scientific and highly uh, valuable and reliable for organizations. So whilst many people understand mindfulness as a way of relieving stress and of feeling a little bit better, which is fab, Mindfulness can seep into entire organizations, but not just through one method, which is for individuals to sit in silent meditation using the breath or other bodily sensations or the body scan as anchor. But there are other ways for us to become mindful, both as individuals or you and me. We could become a mindful team. And that looks and sounds and feels different from the practices that I might do myself to become mindful. And the big aha moment seven, eight, nine years ago for me was that mindfulness is not the same as sitting in silent meditation. Sitting in silent meditation is one of many ways to become mindful. And that's actually what John Kabat-Zinn, who I'm of course a big fan of, and perhaps your readers might know about him, but John Kabat-Zinn is the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is pretty much the basis and the foundation for virtually all mindfulness training programs that have now gone into all sorts of contexts. Even though John Kabat-Zinn designed MBSR 40 years ago, based on his understanding of Buddhist contemplative practices, combining them with clinical science for hospital patients. So, and But Cranfield and where I was teaching mindfulness 10 years ago was a very different context from a clinical or medical hospital where people had tried out lots of other things to relieve themselves from the stress associated with chronic pain or with complex medical mental health conditions. And so I was questioning to what extent 
this one-size-fits-all approach to becoming mindful, which is based on using the breath as an, as an anchor, almost tapping into the monastic traditions of people sitting in a cave for hours on end, learning insights through silent contemplative practice, and, and then start to experiment with different ways that help people make space between what's in front of them and how they decide. And that's how I, for example, got into different schools of mindfulness that are saying, what, what's the question that we can ask to help us pause and perhaps see something that we don't see? And that's actually in line with contemplative traditions. It's just not as popular or popularized as the mindfulness as stress relief movement. That feels good in the moment, but that over the last five years or so, scientists have found is increasingly trying to stretch itself and not really work in different contexts, especially, for example, in workplaces. Relaxing is not necessarily appropriate. For example, in high stress, high pressure uh, environments, using mindfulness to calm myself down and slow down might not be the best way for me to make a good decision in the moment. And so mindfulness is relaxation might actually make me less motivated to do the difficult work that I have to do. And that ultimately helps me as well as the organizations. And so we're finding that the one size fits all model of mindfulness that equates mindfulness to silent contemplative practice may not be the full story. And that's one of the reasons why Trudy and I have created the Center for Excellence in Mindfulness Research at City University to push the debate around mindfulness into the next generation. And that's what my latest publication is based on, the next generation of mindfulness trainings, right? But that's so important and so exciting because you and me have spoken before about ways that organizations introduce mindfulness to, to their people. And I always say when I'm training mindfulness in organizations, I think it's become damaged by its own popularity. This, this version of mindfulness has become, yeah. And it's, it is now, when people use the word mindfulness, they think relaxing the body and actually stopping themselves from thinking about their options and almost shutting out thought, you know, being non-judgmental. But non being non-judgmental in a work context especially is not necessarily helpful, even though, of course, we don't want people to judge badly or to prejudge or to be prejudiced. Of course, we don't want that. But we want people to apply their experience or check whether the data that they have is actually the right data rather than just being kind all the time being nice all the time being relaxed all the time because mindfulness might look like i am angry because it's appropriate to be angry i have a difficult conversation because it's right to have a difficult conversation there's injustice in organizations and it needs to be addressed and this is why i'm coming to social aspects, community, collective aspects of mindfulness being so much more important than our current mindfulness training protocols. Our current tr mindfulness training programs assume that people are like monks sitting by themselves. And that in itself translates into their behavior in the, their context. But we know as social scientists that it's the social soup and this is why I like your People Soup podcast. It's the social soup that determines our choices much more than our individual motivation, our individual choice. And it's the norms of our group that make us do things or that prevent us from doing things that are good for us. 
And so my incarnations in the last five years of my research have been focusing on what flavors of mindfulness practice that we can do together. What conversations help us be mindful of each other? What exercises get us to see things that we don't see together so that we can collectively manage stress, not just so that you by yourself learn a bit of stress management skills. And then you hope for the best that when you need those stress management skills in a hectic work environment, you can actually apply them. We've moved to a model where groups, organizations became organizations that approach stress collectively, where nobody's alone in managing stress by themselves, where nobody has to shoulder stress management as an additional to-do list, but where I get sensitized, trained, rewarded for looking out for you, and you get trained, sensitized, rewarded for looking out for me. And, and ironically, this is something that highly value-driven organizations such as the armed forces have traditionally been very good at managing stress collectively. And perhaps that's why the armed forces in the UK are, have been very welcoming of helping me try out these ideas in their different contexts. Wow. My mind's going off like a, a pinball machine. It's so exciting to hear you talk because I'm work, working with organizations at the moment and I'm trying to position this skill of noticing. Yeah. We can do this through mindfulness and we can do it through other ways, but I haven't had the opportunity to take it to the sort of, how can we direct this to each other as well and create those conditions for collaboration and cooperation that we can all experience this. And I, fit, I think it fits in very well with psychological safety. Of course, yeah. And I'm just let me just pick you up on the language that you use, Ross, because we know that language shapes our reality. And so you say, we can do this we can create awareness, we can create motivation for people to do good things that are good for themselves as well as for the collective through mindfulness and through other things. But what do you mean by mindfulness? When what we typically talk about when we, when we mean mindfulness is sitting in silence, using the breath as anchor to start changing the way we process information from intellectual, cognitive, to perception-based, you know, through our five senses. What can I perceive? What can I feel? What can I hear? What can I see? How can I sense what's going on? But this is a dichotomy that's actually a false dichotomy from how we live our lives. We cannot just switch tracks and become mindful. That means we shut out thought. It doesn't really happen. It's, it's actually in a, it's a simplification, and it's also not very helpful to step out of reality and to use mindfulness as a way to escape what is real. What we need to do is monitor, and like you've said the word, notice what is going on. So we need to use mindfulness to notice and to put like a break or a pause into, hold on, am I on the right track or am I on the wrong track? And meditation is actually not just sitting in silence and, and feeling the sensations in my body. Meditation comes from the Latin word meditatio. Meditatio means reflecting. It means an act of checking what one is doing. And so mindfulness is a reflection. It is supposed to be an, an act of noticing and then perhaps making a choice that you might not have seen if you, if you hadn't noticed, if you've gone fast and unconsciously, like sailed through all this internal processes. But you can induce a state of mindfulness, which is effectively a state of being aware of what is going on and of all your choices by asking a question, adding in front of 
what is going on, the saying, I notice that, or I am aware that I'm noticing that. So through language, we can change our state of mindfulness. We do not have to see mindfulness as, hold on, let's take a moment of mindfulness now, because then we're effectively separating mindfulness from what we're doing every day. And I'm absolutely certain that if we continue to see mindfulness as a formal activity that we need to spend formal time to train, to learn, to process information through our five senses and through, by perceiving reality, rather than by checking what we perceive against what we know intellectually, it will not become embedded. As much money as we throw and as many mindfulness trainers that we train up to do it, it needs to become organic. And in organizations where we are effortfully talking to each other by paying attention to how we're speaking to each other. Those are the organizations that not only function mindfulness, but they actually function more reliably in the face of stress. That's it folks, part one in the bag. I'm pressing pause for a bit of meditatio so we can all reflect. Tune in next time for the second part of my chat with Yuta, where we delve into her research into collective mindfulness. If you like this episode or the podcast, please could you do three things. Number one, share it with one other person. Number two, subscribe and give us a five-star review with some wonderful words, whatever platform you're on. And number three, share the heck out of it on social media. This will help us reach more people with stuff that could be very useful for them. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peacesoupers, and bye for now. A superhero with a trusty sidekick dog and what do you think <laughs> yes make it about tilly and make me the supporter i could check where yeah. where timmy has fallen into the well <laughs> <laughs>